out of Seattle in the US, I'm joined by Ray Dumay, who is a guru of organizational transformation and general change management. Ray recently also started a group in Seattle focused specifically on employee experience. And in this episode, she talks about the hard work that lies ahead if you actually want to work on transforming your workplace culture. Ray explains that you really need to roll up your sleeves, and her and I get into some of the details around the things that you can do to actually create a great place to work. We talk about technology, we talk about the tools that you can use, and we also talk about some of the things that you can do if you don't have the budget to actually pay for all of the fancy tech that is out there. We talk about the importance of gathering data and using this to benchmark and really setting goals towards which you and your team can actually work when it comes to creating the culture that you would like to create within your workplace. For today's episode of the Leadership Burrito, I'm super excited to have this amazing lady whom I came across on LinkedIn. Um, it feels like it was yesterday, but it's probably like a good six months to a year ago. I'm joined by the lovely Ray Dumay, and she is from Seattle. And she does really amazing work in the employee experience, workplace change, transformation space. And she's also a really kick-ass photographer. So I'm very, very thankful to be joined by Ray today for this episode. And for us to speak a little bit, Ray, about you know, you've gotten involved in some really interesting work in terms of organizational change and mopping up the mess, for, for, for lack of a better phrase. So um, I'm really, really excited about chatting to you today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I'm really excited to be talking with you and sharing with the world what what happens when you're trying to mop up the mess and do organizational transformation? Okay, so let's jump right in. Now, one of the things, you know, working in the change space and working in HR, we hear a lot of execs, CEOs saying that culture is super important to them. Um, but in practice, obviously, if, to those of us in the know, you know what to look for, we can see that it's very much just lip service. So how do leaders actually include culture as a true strategic objective, like truly mean what they say? That's a really important question and it's a really important truth to be able to understand how culture comes alive. And uh, for the organizations that have done it really successfully and actually um, have culture living in the way that they intend and they desire, they're actually very diligent, very specific, and very focused on culture being woven into all aspects of the business. So that means that your value statements, the um, qualities that you're looking for to have your culture embodied, it's discussed in every meeting in some form out there. It's included in all the employee communications that happen. It's woven into the employee development and training programs at all hands meetings, all departments meetings. Uh, culture topics are discussed regularly. 
highlights are given of how it's been embodied, what's been embodied, when it's embodied. It's part of evaluations. And the organizations that I've really seen it work the best in as well, it's part of the recognition system. So the recognition programs are actually based in um, acknowledging and honoring the people who are truly embodying all the different components of culture. Uh, it's hard work and it is not a platitude on the wall or an employee brand statement. That is not how culture lives. It's not how it, it thrives. Um, it needs to be tended to, uh, if we're gonna go with a food metaphor like a burrito, you have to be very careful when you're actually making the tortillas to make sure you don't burn them. You have to be careful about the texture and the feel of the tortillas when you're actually you know, rolling them out and putting them together. Uh, as you make whatever the filling is, you have to be testing and tasting for seasoning and do you have the right ingredients in, in your mix. Um, if you start to ignore and just assume that the quality of your ingredients are exactly as you expect them to be, over time that'll start to change. Yes, I, I love that that analogy and I love, you know, it, it's it's a living, breathing thing, like you say, it's work. It's not pretty words on a poster, you know, in, in your lobby or your reception area. It's something that you need to work on. And I like what you're saying about the ingredients because so much goes into culture. It's, you know, Dr. Cameron Tapar, who's, who's one of our guests earlier on in, in this um, series, um, he wrote this article that went viral and he said that your corporate culture is who you hire, fire and promote. And that for me ties in so nicely with what you're saying because, you know, it's like adding the wrong ingredient can completely ruin whatever you're, you're working on. Um, and as you say, tying culture and values to your performance appraisals to your recognition system, you know, so that you really are redefining the concept of a high performer. It's, it's great that I'm your top salesperson, but it's even better that I'm your top salesperson and I truly embody the values that you want your organization to stand for. Absolutely. And, and also to really be making sure that understand that culture uh, becomes just um, um, the unconscious way of being, the unconscious way of existing. And so if you want to actually, through the neurological systems, and if you want to look at psychology and neurology, uh, you need to actually create the pathways between your neurons and your receptors to create habits and drive those ruts in, if you will, into the brain that we just do this this way because it's just how we do business. Yes. And that takes a tremendous amount of focus and a tremendous amount of dedication to, to get it really woven into the organization. And then the other things that you also really need to be careful about that I think is a huge opportunity around culture or values or your vision statement is that a lot of times organizations and people, they have somebody go and design the words, they have somebody design the phrase. However, there's never any discussion to actually bring everyone together to clarify, unite, and align with what the specific meanings of the words are and how they're embodied, how they're lived, and how you go about evaluating them. So oftentimes, it's just assumed that everybody uh, knows what ethics means. Everybody knows what uh, compassion means. Everybody knows what 
um, you know, striving to be the best means. And yet, if you were to ask every individual person to define it, every person's definition would be different. Completely different. And that's another reason why culture fails, is because there's an assumption that everybody automatically has the same perception and experience of terms and words. And that's not true. So until you can actually create that unity in an organization, you will have um, clashes and you'll have um, um, situations where, where you just don't understand why people can't seem to get it together. And so that also involves including the entire system in regular check-ins, evaluations, and updates to make sure that we're all still aligned on those meanings of the terms as well. So, so you're giving us, and I mean, that's my next question, you're giving us a lot to think about here. So let's assume you've now landed up in a situation where you realize your culture is a mess or it's not what you, what you would like it to be. Um, you know, you're talking kind of around maintaining, you're talking around creating a shared understanding and the regular check-ins, but let's say you've just realized you might be in trouble or your culture isn't where you need it to be. Where do you even start transforming? Where do you even... Like, like, what do you, what's step one? What do you do? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, uh, in that it requires first and foremost, being willing to fully invest in the work. When it's time to mop up a toxic culture or toxic situation, you, there's a lot of work to be done. And the work starts with top leadership whether it's your board of directors, your CEO, your C-suite, or your VPs, uh, it starts with looking at yourself and looking at how you are showing up and how you are present in the system. Um, and that can be a really tough place to be, is to come to a place to understand that if you have been part of the organization for any length of time, and the culture isn't what you desire, that culture is reflecting you. Yes. That is a, that is a very inconvenient truth, that, because as you say, you know, so, and, and I think just to clarify, perhaps for our listeners, you know, we're not saying that everyone is a horrible, toxic person, but, you know, in, in a previous episode, Hilton Barber was saying, your culture becomes the things that you tolerate, you know, yeah. it's, so even if I have not necessarily done anything actively to contribute to a toxic culture, my inaction, my omissions, my lack of actually calling you out and saying, listen, what you're doing right now is not okay. Those things that you tolerate are also contributing, whether you like it or not, to create um yeah. Absolutely. You are 100% correct. And the other thing is, too, is, is when you're in an organization and you are constantly barraged with all of the different um, measurements, the KPIs, um, you know, trying to hit your metrics, trying to hit your performance, you start to have a paradox that starts to play out. Mm -hmm. Is do you live to your cultural norms and expectations and beliefs? or do you live to hitting the metrics? And oftentimes the behaviors that are tolerated to hit the metrics are behaviors that are antithesis to your cultural standards and expectations. Yes, and, and I mean, we see this a lot in a lot of businesses, especially where they say, you know, um, for me personally, and I mean, this is a separate discussion for us to have a, a whole <laughs> podcast on. I don't like when I see companies 
core values talk about their customers. Because in my experience, those are the companies where this happens the most often, where your customers are put first, or it's something about being the best, you know, whatever shoe manufacturer globally. It, it's in there that people lose sight of the humanity. And in, in chasing those metrics, as you say, they tend to sacrifice culture and the empathy and the humanity and just treating their staff really well. Absolutely. And, and again, a lot of times when you actually boil down what's the meaning behind the customers come first, a lot of times it means profit. Exactly. But it doesn't necessarily, and that's why we need to do that exercise with people. When we say customers first, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're going to call me back from my honeymoon to come and sort something out, you know, that you're going to expect me to regularly work 16 hour days. That's not what it means. And that's what we need to clarify for people, especially if our core values in a company do speak about our customers and about being the best or quality or, you know, something like that. I think it's even more important to clarify what that means. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's some techniques uh, that I really find are incredibly powerful and, um, and just incredibly enlightening to help get clarity around what's the current state uh, versus what's the best possible future state that we're aiming for and how do we get there. And so one of those things, if we go to like where to start, um, if you want to start to get active once you do the hard <laughs> exam <laughs> and self-reflection, and uh, that takes some personal mastery. Uh, and there are ways to really guide yourself around personal mastery and looking at where are my blinders, where are my blind spots, uh, the trusted uh, people who will tell you the truth. And the truth of the matter is, is if you become somebody who's uh, from director level to VP level to C-suite, the people that you're surrounded with may not actually be giving you the truthful statements. So that's another part of the, the situation is, is are those people that you're trusting to be in those upper leadership positions actually sharing the truth and actually being truthful with you? Or are you getting into a situation of the, um, the story of the emperor has no clothes? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Surrounded by this bunch of little sycophantic, you know, yes men. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about a, a world leader who I think is surrounded by a sycophantic little group of yes men. So, I think there are many world leaders who are in that situation yeah, right now. There's one, I think, you know, who tends to hit Twitter quite, quite often. And, Absolutely. Uh, and then you kind of think, really, you know, who's telling you this? So, um, and, and I mean, I agree with you on this. And that's why I'm a, I'm a very big proponent of using data, you know. So, yeah. so whether it, whatever engagement tool it is, a lot of people use pulse surveys. You know, there's companies like Team Foria and High Five and, and, and people like that who, who can really get some brilliant data out of your employees in terms of your culture. And this yes. data can be completely anonymous, but it will be a litmus test for you. And I mean, we can drill it down to department, to branch, you know, to a satellite office in Spokane for you, you know, where you can see exactly what the culture is like across departments. Um, and, and actually give you something to start working from, especially if, if you, you don't just want to take kind of subjective information. 
from the people around you. Yes, and so gathering data is absolutely one of my critical key points, and you named some amazing organizations. One here that sits in Seattle that provides services around the world is kind of called Tiny Pulse. I love their product and their program because they both give quantitative and qualitative data um, on a regular basis. When you talk about the employee surveys, the space not to dive into, and this is again where a lot of organizations um, get tripped up, is that biannual or annual employee engagement survey. That's the one-time snapshot that really means nothing. Mm -hmm. And so many organizations, they think that that gives you the entire picture of the organization and they create a strategic plan around it. And it really means absolutely nothing. Your employees tend not to trust the system. Uh, you don't tend to have a lot of uh, participation uh, when you look at the averages and then also oftentimes in those um, more uh, laborious employee engagement surveys, uh, it's either the people who are really happy who respond or the people yes. who are really upset. It's the all or nothing ones. That's why, I mean, I'm also, I'm a very big fan of pulse surveys and also yep. for, for linking um, the culture stuff with your performance data and, and creating a, like a 360 kind of feedback. I'm a very big fan of Team Foria and of High Five Technologies. They both kind of do that where you can, you know, as, as my manager, as my colleague, you can be giving 360 degree feedback. And it's specifically on how I'm living the values. Yeah. Um, I think that gives really rich data that, you know, you can then use in your check-ins with me and that, that you can then coach me around. And it gives a nice jumping off point around, you know, Debbie, you're, you're a great salesperson, but it turns out, you know, um, across the board, people kind of agree that you're not very empathetic, you know, and, and you can start actually really addressing a, an, an actual blind spot with me, which is very powerful. It absolutely is. And that's why I love the development of those pulsing survey organizations out there because they're helping shift the dynamic of how to actually gather the data and then how to make meaning of it. And even more powerfully, they're actually embedding inside the system how to help people become really effective um, leaders in their supervisory or management role. So you're, you're being walked through that process without it being a formal training program, if you will. And that's why I love it because, again, it's creating that neurological uh, uh, ruts, if you will. It's connecting the synapses and it's creating the guide and then it's creating the habit every, every week, every couple of weeks, how to do it and how to approach your people. Yeah. So I think those um, pulsing surveys are fantastic. Another really powerful technique modality though that's helpful because if you don't have the money, the finances, or you don't have that system embedded in your organization, now the question goes, well, that's great, but now what do I do? Where do I start? Um, and there's another AI that I really love out there, and that's the modality of appreciative inquiry. And it comes from David Cooper Ryder out of Case Western Reserve um, University, and its modality has been around for a couple of decades now. And it's um, all about looking at what's the best possible future state. And even if you have the pulsing systems, that's a great place to also start in mopping up, is getting out there and starting to invite everyone to contribute, everyone to have a voice, and first start with that aspirational 
what is it that we're driving for, what's going to unite us all, that united um, uh, North Star, and if we're talking back to the burrito, what's like the most ultimate burrito that we could possibly come up with? What's it smell like? What's it taste like? What's it look like? What's the sounds around us? Uh, what's happening? When you actually create a very vibrant and very compelling um, next possible future state, now you start to align everyone to something that can be drawing and compelling you forward. Um, and then you can start looking at what the current state is. So now that we know what the best possible state is, let's now start looking at what's current state. And again, ask from the whole and get contributions and information from the whole. There's ways to do your inquiry and surveys um, inside the organization without defaulting. Um, and then from there, you can go with where we're currently at, where we want to go, and then you start to create the milestones and the stepping stones to get there. And you create a visual map, you create a journey map um, that allows you to start to navigate in those, in those directions that you're seeking. I love that. And that is, like you say, that is a low tech, you know, not super expensive because any organization can get people together in a room or get them together on a, on a call and say, where would we like to go? What, what do we want this to look like? And this is also something that's, you know, it's something that we use in coaching all the time. You know, when people, even in grow coaching, we use it, you know, what's your goal? Your reality right now is this, what's your goal? What does it look like? What does it taste like, feel like? Um, get super clear on that. And then you can start working towards that. And I think you've given us so much to think about. I mean, I had this, this question prepped um, and I think maybe just let, let's, let's dive into it anyway. I wanted to ask you when we're driving change and transformation at work, what are the top five things that you would say that leaders need to be aware of? And I know that's a very broad question because I mean, there's so many things to be aware of, but top five things, you've given some amazing insights, but top five things that you want leaders to really be aware of as they start on this journey of creating a great culture? Yeah, great. It's a great question. And I think it's probably going to be a little surprising if we've got audience members who are sitting in the C-suite and above. Um, it may not be surprising if it's leaders who are sitting in change management space. Um, but uh, there is, number one, there is no one size fits all, magic bullet, add water, can it grows, approach or fix. So first and foremost out there, stop buying the snake oil from the organizations and from the uh, vendors and from the experts that say, if you just apply, everything will be beautiful and fantastic. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard reality to um, accept, but that's just not the truth. And that's why uh, all the efforts around the globe fail and why billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent on initiatives that just don't go anywhere. Yeah, and, and, and just, to, just to add to that, you know, when you talk about the snake oil, I think we need to clarify as well. Again, I, I work with quite a few tech partners and I'm sure you do as well. Um, that's not snake oil. The, the, the difference here is that people make the mistake of thinking that the tech or the data is going to magically fix your culture and it's not. The tech and the data is going to tell you where you should be looking, but you still need to do the work. You know, there is, there's nothing besides, it's, it's, it's honestly like losing weight. You know, I, I have like a, a good 30 kgs that I, I could do with losing. 
And I mean, I don't even know what that is in pounds, but the bottom line is there is no magic pill. We all know what I need to do. I need to get my ass into the gym or, you know, I, I need to, I need to eat certain foods. I need to do certain things and that's going to give me the results that I want. It, th there is no drink this blue pill and tomorrow morning you're going to look, you know, like Christy Turlington or whatever. <laughs> I'm giving away and, my age. And there. that you'll stay that way for the next 50 exactly. years with no efforts. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so that is very true. So snake oil, I think people must understand there's amazing tools and amazing products and really great change management practitioners out there. They're not peddling snake oil. Um, it, it's, it's the, the misconception comes in that you don't have to do any work, you know, there, there is. And, and there are absolutely amazing people out there doing amazing work and they're actually amazing vendors and there are vendors out there and there are individuals out there who are truly selling you something that has no value to it whatsoever. So you also need to be very thoughtful about who you partner up with. So yeah. Um, and I've worked with organizations that have purchased a lot of uh, product that is based on no methodology. It's based on no research. It's based on, on nothing really other than a trendy word that they've heard and they start capitalizing in the market and they try and sell you this trendy word that's supposed to fix everything. So there's two sides to those coins. Um, yes. And if it, if it seems too good to be true, it usually is, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on the other side of that, the other thing of like top five things is uh, as um, leaders spend some time and take some energy to understand organizational psychology. Um, and if you, if you haven't spent time diving into and researching uh, and you don't have a lot of time, then again, go back to this idea of investing. Invest in bringing some people around you who are actually experts and well-steeped in organizational psychology, organizational development, um, because this starts to go into the technical aspects of the business and organization. As you said, Debbie, too, uh, a lot of those programs bring in the data and the tech, uh, but what you also need is the balance of the human needs and realities in your org um, change and transformation. And that often is also what's missing in the systems and in the programs that are being offered is the human side of the change. Yes. And what's next, would you say, on your list? Because I mean, this is, a, this is a big list. It is a big list and it's hard to, it's hard to come it down to five, but uh, three and four come together for me. And that is understanding that your change and your transformation does not happen overnight. Yes. So you need to build a time horizon into your plan. Okay, I like that. And oftentimes in the experiences that I've been in, you need to spend 10 times more time evaluating your current reality, the data, your systems, your processes, than you originally think you need. Uh, then you can formulate your plans and start taking action. So also in that it takes more time is number one. And number two, spend more time, invest more time in understanding what the current state really is before you start formulating the plans. Because a lot of times there's a sense of urgency and we have to act immediately. And uh, there's that desire to jump on the first idea that feels really good, that feels like it's a great idea. 
and without evaluating, is it actually going to get you the results that you're looking for? Yeah, I, I like that. I think it's, it's very, very important for our listeners to understand that, you know, if we don't spend enough time on kind of the diagnostic side of this, um, we, we end up focusing our efforts on the wrong things. Yes. And, it, and so it turns into, um, I don't know if the world knows this, but the carnival game, the whack-a-mole, uh, where you've got the mallet and the little animals that pop up in all the spots. Um, and it turns into a 360-degree whack-a-mole game. And so you, you hit something, and you think you're hitting it, but then another problem pops up, and then you hit that problem, and another problem pops up. So if you actually take the time to really slow down and evaluate how everything is interwoven and interconnected and where the unexpected uh, delays are and unexpected, unexpected impacts are, then you can plan for it and then you can actually speed up. So there's a phrase that I love to say that's kind of counterintuitive to many people, but that is slow down to speed up. Yes. And it's amazing that if you spend that extra time up front evaluating and making the plans, how fast the transformation can actually take place and then how long it can actually be sustained and maintained and, and, and kept alive. I love that. Okay. Um, was and that number five, do you mind if I put number five in there too? Number five, because I, I, I kind of lost can't be. I'm, I'm very <laughs> yes, so number five is uh, keep in mind how, um, how and who looks at the issues uh, when you're doing your, your look at um, your transformation. So like in physics, um, we know that if you look at light, depending on how you intend to look at it, it's either a wave or a particle. Mm. And I bring this up because who's looking at the issues and how you're looking at the issues will actually influence what you're actually paying attention to. And so keep in mind this idea that everything's like light and that depending on how you look at it, you actually impact how it presents itself to you in that moment. And that can be an interesting place to spend time in as well. Okay, and I mean, we, we all tend to kind of bring our own worldview and our own interpretation of things. So that's very, very important to be aware of that. Who's looking at the problem and what are they bringing? What goggles are they looking at it with, you know? Yes. Absolutely. And just by the mere fact that you're looking at it and perceiving it, how are you actually impacting and changing it in the moment as well? Yes. Because nothing is static. Exactly. That's very, very profound. So you've given, again, I think you've kind of answered this for us to a certain extent, but why would you say that most attempts at organizational change actually end up failing in the long term? Um, to sum it all up, I think ultimately it comes down to a discomfort with risk, ambiguity, and then trusting your system and your people to actually have the answers. Wow. Okay. That is, that is very profound. And I think also, you know, from what I've seen, is is just not doing the work it's expecting expecting miracles but not actually doing the work absolutely and that's one of the things that weaves into why or organizational changes or transformations fail and there's a concept out there um, where you're attempting to implement technical solutions for adaptive challenges 
Yes. And so the technical solutions, it would be say we're trying to, going back to our burrito, um, our, our cooking system is no longer what's going to work for us and we want to come up with a new cooking system. So do we go with a flame? Do we go with an induction burner? Do we go with an oven? How do we actually cook what we're trying to cook? So we're trying to actually take our culture and fix it by changing the heat source. But ultimately, uh, for the adaptive challenge, we might actually need to completely reconsider how we actually um, behave with the food, how we actually select the food ingredients, how we actually choose who's, who's actually in charge of making the food. And maybe we even need to look at going outside of the, the tortilla and the beans and whatever the meat filling is. And maybe we need to go be inspired by um, you know, food that comes from Asia or food that comes from Northern Europe. Um, and what kind of vehicle or vessel is, is a different kind of wrapper that may actually give us a whole new way of approaching things. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, a strange metaphor in some ways for, for uh, maybe for some, but the technical solutions are oftentimes that quick magic fix. If we just apply, it'll change everybody and everything. But adaptive challenges, that's where you're actually looking to change human behavior, human values, and human um, uh, you know, approaches to the challenges in front of you. Yes, and and like you said, there's no one size fits all for that, and there's no easy, you know, quick and easy fix. Right. So my last question for you um, is: When we get this right, when companies actually get this right, what are the payoffs? Like, what are the what's the prize at the end of the marathon? <laughs> The prize at the end of the marathon, um, the organizations that really get this right is that that future possible state, that best possible future state that is imagined, uh, you actually end up hitting that and actually going beyond what your wildest imagination could have been. So through really striving towards that ambitious, compelling vision, you start to unify the whole you start to actually create synergistic moments where connections start to happen and ideas start to formulate that no one person or one team or one department could have ever come up with on their own. But as you start to create these connections, the message and the ideas and the business starts to amplify and that just amplifies on itself and amplifies even more. So a lot of times you just hit this synergistic magic that you could have never imagined for yourself. Um, and that's because the entire system has designed the solutions and is now embedded and engaged and committed to actually hitting the results. So you start to see lower turnover in your employee ranks. You start to see higher return on investment. You start to see more complete and thorough solutions. You start to see implementations that actually stick and sustain you have empowerment and inclusiveness starting to happen across your teams and your departments. You start solving for opportunities instead of solving for problems. And I think that's one of the big ones is instead of problem solving, you're creating opportunities. And that's a slight twist in a perspective, but that helps create a whole different kind of magic capacity for the organization. 
And ultimately, you start to hit people's fulfillment, sense of fulfillment, because they know that they've contributed to the whole and their role actually contributes to an outcome that's greater than their own. And you also start to have peer-to-peer -peer impact, which is just incredible in organizations as well. I love that. That is amazing. Um, and I mean, obviously, it sounds like a no-brainer. Like, why would you not want to fix your culture if, if these are the payoffs that you can afford to? And I mean, we know the answer to that, you know, um, because it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to do. Ray, it has been absolutely amazing chatting to you. I very much believe that we're going to end up having a follow-up season to this first season. And um, if our listeners want to contact you, whether they want more information on the work that you do, they want to work with you, where's the best place for them to get hold of you? Currently, the best place to get a hold of me is through LinkedIn. Um, on my profile, you can certainly reach out to me and uh, message me there. I am in the process of actually putting together my consulting organization, but I still haven't quite got the website up and running yet. So okay. as soon as that happens, I'll have that included in my LinkedIn profile. But right now, that's actually the best place to get in touch with me. Fantastic. Ray, thank you so much for your time and for your amazing insights. Um, I very much look forward to the impact that we are going to hear that this episode has made for our listeners. Thank you so much. You're welcome again. Thank you for the honor of being here with you and being part of this series. And I too am looking forward to seeing what the ultimate impact of a collaborative group of experts can do to help change organizational uh, systems and culture. Ah!